Welcome to the first season finale of Standing at the Edge. I'm Casey Stratton. Very excited to be here and talking with you today. Full disclosure, my, I'm losing my voice for some weird reason. I think it's allergies to people are riding motorcycles around my neighborhood. And this is why I need to invest in soundproofing. You'd think I would by now, but I just end up when I'm recording with a bunch of takes I can't use. So... Let's just get right down to it today. There's a lot we're going to be going over. Of course, I like to do a quick check-in. We're in the time of COVID. We're in the times of civil unrest. Now we have seen Jacob Blake shot in the back seven times in Kenosha, or Wisconsin. And then, whatever, I'm not even going to use the guy's name because I'm sick of reading it and seeing photos of him cleaning up graffiti as if that somehow excuses murder. Uh, we had someone murder two protesters um, just following that, so... Ooh, and then Chadwick Boseman has died. I'm a couple days late on the podcast. It was my husband's birthday on Thursday. And then we had to rush to the emergency room at 4.30 in the morning on Friday morning. So happy birthday to him. Terrible abdominal pain, but we don't know what it is. So we're just trying to ride it out with some meds and see. But we've ruled out anything life-threatening, so that's good. But jeez, it's like, can we get a break? I broke my clavicle. Now we're in the ER all day. So I didn't get a chance to put this together Thursday like I wanted to, and then I didn't get a chance to do it Friday either. So, of course, between Friday and Saturday, today is August 29th, 2020, we found out that Chadwick Boseman had died at 43 years old. Literally, he's six weeks apart from me. Died of colon cancer. Again, it just brings home everything I've been talking about this season with health. Like, you just don't know. Anything can happen. It can feel shocking. I know that there's just a lot of grief and people are feeling badly, especially my friends of color and my black friends specifically and my, my husband who's biracial. Like, There's just been so much stress. And so then to see someone who is literally the king of Wakanda and Black Panther pass away in the midst of all this just feels like, man, 2020, you gotta stop. You gotta stop. Anyway, though, today, this week, the final episode. We're going to have some fun stuff to do, so we're going to sh try to shift away from the troubles of the world just for a little while. We're going to talk about what happened after Stand at the Edge came out. A major story I've never ever told publicly at all about what happened with Sony because I wasn't out. And so I'm also going to talk about that, my complicated relationship to being a gay person who also happens to be a recording artist and why for a long time I never said I was straight, but I also would not say I was gay. And some people hate that about what I've done and think that was a bad choice. Other people are behind me. I firmly believe that it's your choice to come out unless you're actively hurting the LGBTQ community. Like if you're some politician who's rallying the troops to pass legislation against me and then you get outed, I'm not going to feel so bad then. But I think for most of us, almost all of us, my personal opinion is that like 99% of the time, it should be someone's decision. And uh, as we go through this conversation today, I'm going to remember and I want you to remember that the times I'm talking about begin in 1995 and wrap up in 2003. So we were not living in 2020. I have a feeling if I had been an 18-year-old now, I would have made a very different decision. So for the first time ever, for the final episode of this season, I'm going to talk about all of it. I'm going to talk about why I didn't come out. I'm going to talk about why I did finally ultimately decide to. And I'm going to talk about what happened with Sony around that. that and it was very dramatic. And then for fun... I've, last week I mentioned I might throw in some Easter eggs. I found the recording that was made of my Standing at the Edge release party show at Joe's Pub in New York City. It's never been released, and I'm going to play you three tracks from that show as we move through the podcast today. So let's dig in. <laughs>
we left off. It's 2004. Stand at the Edge had come out. Um, a big shakeups at Sony. One of the people in marketing who I think was the head of marketing, she quit. Uh, but now I got to backtrack a little bit because there's a little bit of backstory here. Um, when I first signed to Sony, they, within a few weeks, uh, invited me to lunch. There's this restaurant on the top floor of 550 Madison Avenue. And so it's full of executives and it's pretty fancy for me at the time. And they bring me to lunch and everyone's being really awkward and uncomfortable. I think it was three people. So we have like marketing and I think the president was there uh, and a few other people, like one other person. I can't remember who the third person was, but we're having lunch and I can tell everyone's just feeling really awkward. So I'm like, okay, what's going on everybody? And they're like, okay, listen, we know that you're gay, but we really don't think that you should be openly gay. And I was like, oh, I'm not gonna be, so problem solved. And they were like, oh, we're so relieved. And so we had this conversation and I'm gonna basically sum up what I said and what I felt at the time. So I started my recording career. I can t already tell I feel defensive about this and I shouldn't, this is my journey and I'm just trying to be honest and transparent like I always am. So I started my professional career in 1995. Times were very, very different. Like I've talked about in previous episodes, I grew up without representation. I grew up in the Midwest. I, it wasn't a, a very gay-friendly place for me. I had to deal with how difficult that was to navigate. And then I was living in Los Angeles, and of course things were much better. But what I was noticing was that the artists that seemed to quote-unquote get away with it uh, were not gay from the beginning. And, you know, I'm thinking of Michael Stipe, Anyway, there, there were artists that would eventually come out and it was like, oh, okay, that's just one extra thing about them. But I feel like coming out of the gate as an artist who it happens to be gay, you become gay artist Casey Stratton, gay artist, gay artist, gay artist, gay artist. It becomes the descriptor. And I thought, I have worked way too hard to be good at being a musician, to have to have the at, at word gay come before my title of artist. And I don't want to read the negative press or have the backlash or have people refuse to even acknowledge or listen to my work because of this one thing that does not define me. At the time, I didn't feel like I, I wanted to be an activist. I wanted to be a musician and I wanted to get out there and I wanted to build a name for myself and be respected. And I wanted the first thing to be artist Casey Stratton, singer, songwriter Casey Stratton, singer Casey Stratton, songwriter, producer, whatever, Casey Stratton. Like that's what I wanted for myself. And then I knew at some point when it felt safe for me personally, professionally, psychologically, mentally, physically. I mean, I'm, I've toured by myself and I'll tell you right now that the South does not feel like a good place for me. I, I feel real visceral fear being alone, getting gas in the middle of nowhere in the South. So there were a lot of things involved. I had made a decision really early on that I was going to come out when it made the most sense for me personally and professionally. And that in those times seemed like the smart choice. I was never going to say I was straight. I was very clear with everyone I worked with. I will not lie. I will just find ways to kind of move around it. And I got really creative. I mean, I had interviews with people and this is, I'm jumping ahead, way ahead for a minute. I had interviews during the Stand at the Edge time where like I was telling reporters from gay magazines like you know I just want to be a musician first and everything else about me that's my private life it's like if I were blue if I were a smurf I wouldn't want to be blue singer songwriter Casey Stratton blue singer blue this and he was like do you mind if I print that and I was like go ahead so I basically said it without saying it and he didn't print it so isn't that interesting anyway 
everybody's on the same page everybody's relieved and then sony the marketing department you know people left and i'm just gonna be really honest i think they took the easy way out i think they didn't know what to do i think they were concerned about how to market the record especially when we're in january which is a terrible time to release so i have this meeting at sony to talk about all sorts of things standing at the edge there were probably 15 of us in a conference room and my manager was like on teleconference when that was still a pretty novel thing in los angeles so she's on the phone and i am sitting there and we're talking about x y and z and then they're like okay so listen we have a change with the marketing that we've decided to do. We think it will be best if we market you as a gay singer-songwriter. We contacted Out Magazine, let them know you were gay, and they're interested in doing a feature on you. I'm just giving you a moment. Because that's what... So I'm just going from zero to a hundred internally. My blood starts boiling. I'm like, excuse me, you did What? And they're like, what's the problem? And I'm like, the problem is that you just outed me without having a discussion. I'm getting really emotional. I might cry. I'm like, you didn't even discuss it with me. Like, that's not something you just go tell the media. Like, that's my business. That it is absolutely unacceptable that you went behind my back and did this. I'm like, you, you're, you just changed my whole life without any sort of conversation, without asking me if I was okay with it. I'm like, I feel it's because you didn't think I would do it. So you did it for me. And they're just like, calm down. I'm like, no, I won't calm down. I'm like, this is absolutely unacceptable. And I have kept my cool all through all this crap that we've been going through and all the talk about how I wasn't cute enough and I weighed too much and you didn't think that shirt looked good on me five minutes before I go on television. I'm sick of this. I'm like, this is where it stops. This is where I draw the line. And my manager's like, oh, Casey, we can talk about this. I'm like, no, we can't talk about this. This is a bell you cannot unring. So... Everyone keeps talking, 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 talking. This has become a kind of famous story of my friend group. Finally, I just slam my hand out on the table and I'm like, I am not coming out and we are not talking about this ever again. Do not ever bring it up to me again. Never. So that started the chain of events where it became all my fault that the album was failing. That you know, before that it was oh nobody wants the music, the music's to blame. Then it turned into well, the, see we told you it's because you wouldn't come out. But the damage was done because Out Magazine knew I was gay, so they told everybody else. So almost every interview I did with a gay publication, they would even be telling me. Some of the reporters, I remember one of the reporters told me, my editor asked me to trick you into coming out, like any way I possibly could to trick you into saying it, because everybody knows, and now you won't talk about it. So now I'm like evil to the gay press, which is not what I want at all. I never, that was never going to be the thing. I was never going to be like, oh, I'm not gay and ooh, that's gross. It was always going to be like, I'm an ally or I, I care about these issues. I wouldn't even say ally because again, that makes it seem like you're not. I was very careful about my language. I had it all down. I knew how to deal with the press. It was 2004. I didn't feel like it was a good thing to be doing. I didn't want to get all in this the, the political thing about the ballot initiatives. And of course now I would. Of course, but I hope that everybody listening to this will remember that I'm this guy that just spent seven years, eight years of my life trying to get this thing, this major label deal on the CD made by Patrick Leonard. I didn't want to like have anything that could jeopardize it. And I know some people might, might judge that, but I wanted to do it on my own terms, on my own timeline. And it all got taken from me. All of that got taken. 
And I was like, no, I'm reclaiming my power, like forget it. So to this day, I mean, Sony did a lot of marketing for, for, with the gay community and I'm so grateful for it because I have such great fans. But I am kind of a niche market even in that. Like that's what I try to explain to Sony. I'm like, you actually think you're making the right move, but you're not. Because I don't make the kind of music that the broader gay community is necessarily gonna get behind. I make sensitive singer-songwriter music. That's like a fringe of a fringe. I don't make dance music. I don't have washboard abs. You're right. If you don't think I'm attractive enough for women to buy my record, have fun with gay men because it's not going to be fun. I'm going to tell you that right now. And the gay men that are my fans are fantastic. But I think we could all agree that we're all kind of like the people who don't necessarily belong <laughs> in the bigger picture. And that's, I think, why we connect the way we do. Because there is a sense of like, no, we're not about the scene. And that's okay. The scene is fine. All that's fine. But again, like I never felt like I belonged in the gay community in Los Angeles or in New York. So I was like, why do, why do I have to die on this hill for a community that I don't even feel embraced in just because I happen to be part of it? It's like, I just, ew, I didn't like it. And I still don't like it. And it's complicated. And I judge myself sometimes too. But I was just trying to like get out there and have a name for myself. And then I could do the work of coming out, of being human already to people. I would be a human being first. They would know me as a musician. And then I'd be like, oh, okay, maybe I can get on board with that. And maybe that would have changed more minds. I don't know. I'm not, you know, a sociologist, but that's where I was. That's where my head was at the time. It was deeply difficult and it was deeply painful to be outed by a giant corporation like that without consulting me. I is probably the worst thing that's ever happened in my career. And I've had to hold on to that. For 16 years, I've held on to that story. So I think you can understand where I got a little dramatic. And I know I'm not some huge victim. I mean, it's just, this is me living my life, and it doesn't really affect the universe in any major way. But for me, it was just like, ah, all the work I had done to be careful about this, because it's a time where you have to be careful about this. And I grew up being told just swipe, sweep it under the rug, and now you're trying to make it something I do in Out Magazine. Like, I'm, I'm not there yet. I was, this wasn't my plan, and, and now you've like thrown a wrench into everything I was picturing. I mean, I had, they had, they were the ones who had paid money for me to sit down with media consultants to talk about how to answer the questions. So it was just, it was not a great time. So that being said, that's the big, huge story for me it was a moment I threw a little, that was my one little throwing a fit moment, but I thought my anger was justified and legitimate in that situation. It was not an everyday meeting. That was not just me getting mad because somebody brought me tea that was too cold, you know? So Ooh, that's a lot. That's a big story to tell. I'm kind of glad I did it finally. So let's listen to one of the Joe's Pub recordings. This is actually, um, I think, February 4th, 2004, recorded live at Joe's Pub. This is me playing Hollow. Thank you very much. <sighs> Thanks so much. How is everyone tonight? Good. Good, it's a good day, good day, good day, good. Uh, so, this next song, I keep telling this story lately, but this song and I were pretty not friends. <laughs> pretty not friends for a long time. We, we didn't get along. It was kind of like a you know, thing that we had going on. It was a love-hate thing. And, and then I, I started to love her again. Because, you know, love makes the world go round. And I sing about love a lot, you know, so. It was about time that she and I became friends. It's called Hollow.
Joe's Pub, Hollow, from the release party show from Stand at the Edge 2004. I can't remember if I just don't remember today or if I didn't remember until I listened back to this that Hollow was one of the songs I didn't want on the record. I know I talked earlier in the podcast about how I didn't want House of Jupiter on the record, but Hollow was another song I didn't want on the album, and I can't even remember why. I just think I didn't feel connected to it. It took the process of making the Standing at the Edge version and the piano vocal live version that you just heard, which is pretty much the same way I play it now, uh, all these years later, it took that for me to reconnect with it. I think at the time I thought, that's not me anymore, that's old news. And I was just sick of it and um, for whatever reason. And now it's like one of the tracks that I'm known for. So my relationship to it because of your relationship to it is also better and changed. So that's one song. I think I mentioned this. Maybe I did. I don't know. I get, I get wrapped up in what I did or did not say. I'm going to be honest. But that song, like I have to be in the mood to play it or I don't play it. And sometimes like blood, people get mad. Um, blood is when I can, t- I can fake it if I'm not feeling it that day. But hollow, like I'm either into it or I don't want to play that song. So certain shows, I just don't play it. In fact, I really don't play it that often when I go back and look at my set lists from the times of touring. Uh, I mean, I mean, I play it a lot because it was well-known, but I don't play it as much as the other like well-known songs like For Reasons Unexplained or Blood. So that was just, I don't know, Hollow and I had a weird, weird vibe for a while there. And still, like, it's just, it's like certain foods, you just got to be in the right mood. Like for me, that's like Indian food. Like I love it, but if I'm, if I don't want it, I don't want it. Like you have to be in that right space, that zone. Sushi's like that for me too. I got to be in the zone or I don't want that. That's how I am with hollow. Hollow is my sushi. So again, like going back and thinking about my career and the sexuality aspect to it, it was just something that was very difficult. I struggled with it for a really long time because I would meet people on tour and nobody, I don't think many people actually overtly asked me, but I did have that weight of like, am I doing people a disservice by not letting them see themselves reflected in me? But I think most people approached my music not necessarily because I was gay. I'm talking gay men specifically. I don't know if that was the thing. I think the connection was the emotions. And so the emotional connection doesn't need any sort of label to it or to be any, you don't need to be anything. You need to be a human being. You don't need to be anything to to have an emotional connection, right? We can do that with each other. So, I mean, I had fans of all all sizes and shapes and colors and things. So, and sexualities and the spectrum and all, all, all these things that make us different, but also the humanity, I think, was the emotional connection that we all felt through my particular songs, which just happened to be very emotional because that's always how I've used music is to process my emotions. And I think that's why I'm good at helping young people do that for themselves now because I've had all this experience with having an outlet, but I did really want to, and I would struggle with like, but I got to the point where it was, I mean, it was so obvious that I just hadn't really quite named it, but I would I mean, I would post things and you you would have to know, I guess. I don't know. Um, and maybe that's just me making excuses. Because I know that when I did finally actually like say I was gay in like a po- some Facebook post or a Twitter thing, and there were people who were like, wow, I've never heard you actually say that yet. So thank you so much for doing that. And like, welcome. And I'm like, okay, this is super weird. Like, I don't need to be welcomed. I I was out behind the scenes. I was out to my family and friends. Like, it wasn't like I was living in the closet. I just wasn't professionally gay singer-songwriter Casey Stratton at that time. And even now, if every, I mean, if I had press, but if one day something blows up again and I have some press coverage, if that's what it says, I'm fine with it now. It was just then, for some reason, I just, I was really trying to protect my artistry and having to make a really difficult decision. And, uh, 
also I just didn't I didn't like the idea of my relationships being public at all not like they have to be you can still be private about that but I don't know I just thought I don't know I think personally and this is me being really vulnerable this is not me trying to make sure I'm checking off the boxes of what you want to hear I was afraid of what it would feel like if I did become well known and the press was trying to get all in my business because I think the minute you are other people want to get into the business of it like if I were a person of color, they'd, if I went to a protest, I'm sure it would be a much bigger deal, right? So, I mean, and that's a bad comparison. I'm just trying to make something fit. But I just, I, I don't know. I didn't like the idea of that being something that everyone was just going to fixate on because it would have been annoying and hurtful. And I just, I don't know. I don't know. But it was, again, I can't judge myself with 2020 Casey. I can't do it because I am judgmental about it to myself, if I'm honest. But it was just something that I had to do. Back to the Joe's Pub show. Now we're going to listen to my performance that day of The Dead Sea.
I still love playing the Dead Sea live. That's another one that I really enjoy playing piano vocal versions of live. I sometimes really get into the ending and go off on these like three minute versions of the ending. Um, I went through a very chaotic relationship where I found out that I had been basically catfished. I had been with someone for months and months and months and I found out that almost everything was not true that I knew about that person. So uh, for a while there, on the t I went on tour like a week later or two weeks later. I, it, maybe it was a month. I don't know if I'm being dramatic, but it was shortly after I went on tour and I would close that song and add this part you might have heard in some of my live performances where I say everything you said was a lie over and over and over again. And that was my way of just kind of digging into that hurt and that pain from that experience of being lied to about major, major things where you basically feel like you're in some movie where everything unravels. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but when you think your relationship is strong and then it completely unravels and the ground is rug is put out from under you, it's not a good feeling at all. And Kurt and I struggle with that, to be honest with you, because I have lots of dreams where he'll turn to me and say, I never loved you in the first place. And like all of a sudden it's like cold. Like there's this like all emotion or care for me is just gone and I realized it was all fake and it was he faked it and I'm like why would he do that but I you know my trust issue is there with that I mean it's not like it shows up every day I'm not super distrusting in fact that's I still have gotten burned a few times since then I am so like transparent and honest which I'm assuming you've gotten about me by now in episode 12 but I just assume everyone's telling me the truth I take people at face value and that's maybe one of my worst traits but I don't want to take that away from myself I'm ideal, idealistic enough still in my 40s to be like, well, I want to believe people are telling me the truth or at least showing me some semblance of who they really are. I know you're not, we don't always show who we really are to everyone all the time, but you know, I hope that, you know, I, I'm like, at least it's ballpark. We're in, we're in the zone. We, we say what we need to say sometimes, right? To fit in or to get through or professionally or whatever we need to do. Uh, we have a thing here called West Michigan nice and it's not a joke it's like there's this thing where everybody will smile to your face then turn around and say all sorts of junk and I get in boiling water at work hot water at work with that sometimes because I'm so honest and other people think I'm way too aggressive I'm like yeah sorry I lived in New York for three years so I just I tell it like it is and I am pretty aggressive about it sometimes to my detriment my in my reviews every year my boss is always like well just make sure your passion doesn't make people feel alienated from you. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I get what you're saying. And you're being West Michigan nice about saying it. So thanks for wrapping it in a pretty bow and calling it passion. Um, what it's just, I mean, it's true, but I do, I am pretty aggressive, especially when I care about something. Well, it's been a lot of fun. I think I'm actually going to miss this. So season two might happen sooner than later because um, I've really enjoyed this journey. And thank you for everyone who's been on it with me. I've really enjoyed hearing from you and just being able to do this. And I, th I think it is a really, my therapist is all about that I'm doing this. I'm just going to tell you because it's been a way for me to, to kind of process through some stuff and just, I don't know, be able to reminisce about my career and why that matters to me and my identity and, and kind of reignite some of those parts of myself. It kind of sucks that I was just getting in a musical space again and recorded and wrote my first song in a long, long time. And then I broke my collarbone and I'm completely out of commission for at least another month, if not two. But that's okay. It's how it rolls. It's 2020 and I'm just going to try to get through and I hope you will too. So... I know I told you, this is the last thing, I feel kind of sad to say goodbye. Um, I know I told you that there was a piano vocal version of Bloom that we lo I lost, that exists, but I can't find it from Stand at the Edge. Well, the next best thing 
is my final encore at Joe's Pub in the Stand at the Edge release show was Bloom. So we're going to close out with my 2004 performance piano vocal at Joe's Pub of Bloom. Please stay safe. Stay well. Stay with me until season two. Stay in touch. Casey Stratton on Instagram and Twitter. Casey Stratton Music on Facebook. If you look me up under Casey Stratton on Facebook, you'll probably get my personal page, which is Casey Stratton Lindsay. You can friend me there too if you want, if you're cool. Not if you're not cool. Um, but, you know, I have a lot of people who friended my personal page, and that's fine. I don't I don't have a huge line of distinction between the two. And I actually post much, much more on my personal Facebook page than my music one. Um, and because the algorithms and all that. but And also just because it's my personal page. I have more to say in real life. I'm not going to put all my cat photos up on, on uh, Facebook, but I do put them on Instagram. Anyway, uh, it's been such a pleasure to do this. This is Bloom 2004. See you later. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I swear. You guys are the best. I swear to God. So, I've never been one to leave things on any note other than severely depressing. So, so I'm taking it all the way with an excellent... But um, this show is brought to you by the makers of Xanax, so there'll be some at the front door. <laughs> it's not really. Maybe because I said that, though, I'll get like a hundred free cases of it. God knows I need it. So anyway, I wanted to thank you all because you've been so wonderful. And um, I, thank you. <laughs> and uh, I love you.
Thank you. You've been wonderful. Good night.